Welcome to the Kintsugi Heroes podcast special Alpine Bushfires series, where we share inspirational stories of everyday people from the Victorian Alpine region who went through the bushfires which occurred from late 2019 through to early 2020. These stories highlight the different challenges and events people went through and how they overcame them. Please be aware that the story you're about to hear may have moments of deeply felt emotions and personal experiences. If anything you hear has a triggering effect, please reach out to someone who can help you. If you love this conversation, please like and share it with your friends so we can continue to share more inspiration and hope to as many people as possible. Now, listen up for our next hero's story. Rob is a special guest. He has been working with bushfire recovery since the Ash Wednesday bushfires of 1983, which I actually remember as a young girl. And he's also been a consultant to the Victorian government and the Red Cross for disasters since 1989. Um, more, more close to home, Rob has a private practice of psycho- with, in psychotherapy. And he is to me like the, the person to have on to talk about what goes on for people and how they can heal from these bushfire disasters. And I'm really grateful and feel very privileged to have Rob with us today. Hello and welcome. It is another special episode of Kintsugi Heroes for the Alpine Bushfires Project. And I'm here with Rob Gordon today. Welcome, Rob. Thanks, Evelyn. Good to be here. Thank you. So whereabouts are you? Uh, Obviously, I'm assuming you're in Victoria. Yes, I live in the Yarra Valley. So I'm fortunate. I have a bit of nature around me. I have a practice down in Box Hill in the outer eastern suburbs, but uh, this this disaster work takes me all over, not, a, not just the state, but all over the country, which is very interesting to meet people all over the place. Wonderful. Well, uh, I'm really keen to hear from you today and learn about the recovery, I think, specifically. I mean, given that you've worked with the government and with people for so many years, you've seen a lot of bushfires, you've seen a lot of disasters, um, you know, tapping into your knowledge and experience is one thing, but also for, for our listeners who potentially have been through a bush bushfire, I'm really uh, hopeful that what they hear from you today will help them in their journey of recovery. So, you know, take us back, you know, where do we start? Well, uh, we could start with uh, me being part of a Royal Children's Hospital team working in the Ash Wednesday fires in the Macedon area and realising that nobody much knew what we should be trying to do with people uh, that were involved in disasters of this sort. They'd only just invented the term post-traumatic stress disorder. But what I gradually realised that there's a whole range of other problems that occur to people. And one of the biggest ones is the disaster is an unprecedented event. Most people have not been through one, or if they have, they never sort of comprehended it. And so it doesn't really help them with the next one, unless it was, you know, a minor scare um, that gives them good experience. And so I realised that 
uh, it was very important to really just listen to people and find out what's going on for them without making assumptions. Over the years, gradually, I've seen patterns emerging. And um, I suppose one of the things I want to emphasize is because uh, it's a social event, by definition, a disaster affects a, a, a community or a group of people or, a, or an area. So everyone in that community is in some way affected. So there's a social dimension to it that we're not used to seeing in normal uh, mental health stress and, and so forth. If a tragedy occurs, and they occur all the time, tragic road accident or criminal event, there are a specific number of people affected and the people around them aren't uh, primarily affected. So they're often available to uh, become supporters. But in the disaster, there's a whole range of, of problems. I can remember working with um, people after the Canberra fires and uh, a woman telling me how devastated she was that virtually all the houses in her street burnt and hers didn't. And for years she's living there, having lived in a warm, uh, supportive, close-knit community. She's there with uh, completely blank blocks around her and it, it, it takes years to rebuild. People never expect that. This is part of the the problem that people go into. They go into with a range of expectations. They might have built a house before or they probably haven't. But they would have the time frame measured around how long it takes to build a house when you choose to do it, you've got the money and you've gone through all the preliminaries and so on. But if everyone in the community is trying to rebuild a house, of course it's completely different. There's a a sort of a, a very tangible graphic experience in the initial stage, and that includes the three elements that I think are most important. Trauma, which is basically the word we use for a psychological injury, and that that comes from having an experience which is beyond my previous experience, exceeds my assumptions, expectations, often is associated with strong feelings of helplessness and involves a very serious threat to myself or others. And what I've learned is that what is traumatic is not necessarily what happens. If bad things happen, that is traumatic. But trauma, the injury, is created by what I think is going to happen because that determines what I get ready for. So there will be a lot of people in any natural disaster environment who go through experiences where they think they might be killed or their loved ones might have died or uh, other terrible things have happened. And that stimulates a deep-seated reorganization of yourself to try and accept and take it on and deal with it. But you don't understand what you've done. And those adjustments often remain in place until a person digs down realizes what they did and undoes it. A very simple example is, um, I remember in Ash Wednesday, people were on the reserve in um, Mount Macedon, and they wouldn't do this now, but a blackened fire crew comes in, staggers off their truck, they've all been traumatized, 
goes around and says to people, your house is all right, yours is gone, yours is gone, yours is okay, we don't know about yours. And this woman who was telling me uh, said they spent the rest of the night grieving their house. And then when things settled down, maybe the next day or so, they slowly went out carefully in their car. As they came around the house uh, corner, there was their house untouched. And she said, I'm ashamed to say it, but I felt a pang of disappointment. Um, and, and that's a really important thing to recognize, disappointment. Um, and uh, we know, you know, stories of the Second World War when uh, uh, people uh, got a, a message about their loved ones, probably just a telegram in those days, that your, your uh, husband is missing in action, presumed dead. And then three years later, he knocks on the door. Of course, there was no mobile phones and I'm, I'm, I'm alive here, I'm coming home. No, they just rock up. And, of course, those marriages often didn't last and the kids didn't recognise the fathers and so on. So it's this deep reorganisation that uh, goes on at an unconscious level because we're not normally operating. So that's, that's, that trauma is a really important issue. It's varied. We can have all sorts of different traumas. So uh, the, the first problem is trauma. The second problem is loss, and loss causes grief. But there can be all sorts of losses. Again, I remember these, are, these were learning experiences for me. A few years into the recovery in Mount Macedon, a woman said, there used to be a beautiful place on the mountain, Mount Macedon, uh, that had a beautiful view and lovely nature all around, a little bit of creek running through it. And that's whenever I was sad, that's where I would go and I would sit there and I'd look over the mountain for a couple of hours and I would feel better. But that's all burnt now and it's all gone. So I've lost, she's really lost her mental health resource. And she really felt that. Now, you, you know, that's very hard to talk about when somebody's lost everything they own. This woman didn't actually lose her house. And so what you start to get is once the loss comes in, it could be loss of friends. Think of the woman in Canberra, um, loss of community, loss of environment, loss of property, loss of, uh, loss of things that ultimately mean something and therefore are part of me. So one of the big challenges is how do I still feel myself when I've lost everything that's part of my history? The, 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 the wide spectrum of losses means that it's very hard for people to understand each other. Another story that comes to mind, uh, talking to a, a flooded community in central Victoria, and there were rows of chairs, and I was giving a bit of a talk about the sorts of things people might go through and how they can look after themselves. And I noticed a couple of uh, rows back, a woman sitting there with a very sad face. And after a time, she put up her hand and said, excuse me, is it possible that people who weren't affected uh, could also feel upset? And I said, yes, of course, and I spoke about some of these things. She said, oh, thank you. She said, well, actually, we were affected. Uh, our shed was flooded. And there was a woman sitting behind her who also looked pretty upset. And I imagine, I never got to speak to her, but I imagine that uh, she had lost everything. And 
this when this woman said we were affected, my shed was flooded, the woman behind her literally rolled her eyes as if to say, oh, you poor thing, your shed is, I'm so sorry for you. And I saw this and I was looking at her sadness and I thought, what can I say? And I just said, what do you keep in your shed? He said, all the effects from my mother's estate, she died a month or so before the flood. How would anyone understand her sadness and that she's entitled to absorb recovery support uh, unless they talked? But of course, as soon as you say that, everyone's going to say, oh, gee, that's pretty tough. So there is a um, an effect a social effect that I first read about in a book published in the 1960s in America by a very famous uh, sociologist in America called Robert Merton, and he was probably one of the first people to actually start scientifically studying disasters. And he noticed that there was a tendency for people to kind of benchmark their impact against the most severe a tragic impact in the community. And if they didn't have anything like that, they didn't feel entitled to ask for help. Don't worry about me. Go and see poor old Rob. He's lost everything. Or, uh, no, don't worry about Evelyn. She's only lost this, that, and the other. It's Rob is the problem. Um, and now he called that relative deprivation. And what's behind that is that in normal life, we constantly make sense of our experience by uh, drawing comparisons with the people around us. After all, the whole notion of normality is based on that comparison. If everybody I know gets upset about this, I'm not crazy, I'm just normal. And so there's a process whereby, to begin with, everyone's gone through this huge experience and they, they, they contract into a tight, I call it the state of fusion, tight, strong, supportive, uh, emotionally uh, resilient sort of group and they all rush around and help each other in the early days but as time passes these differences start to emerge and that's often when um, people sort of lock into their perspective the differences might also be around uh, who did what and when did the emergency services do what I expected them to do uh, without knowing whether, you know, I didn't really listen to their warning communications, so I didn't take any notice of that. So when it happened, I didn't follow their advice, so they weren't where I was and, and so on and so forth. There are a lot of stories like that come out. And be, that's that's part of the disaster being an unprecedented experience. Uh, it's very hard to get people involved in uh, preparedness activities because that's just disasters. We're too busy. You know, I've got things on this weekend. And so you get these tensions begin to emerge. And so one of the problems of the recovery period is there's often a period of social turmoil, of conflict, sometimes very bitter uh, and destructive comment. And we know now with uh, social media, you can say whatever you like and have everybody know it. Uh, and, and some very... Uh, emotional, thoughtless things are said, which are very, very wounding. And I know that um, I've met people. I met a woman who I worked with, again, in Ash Wednesday. These were all the learning experiences. 
some years later, uh, in a, she was uh, part of the recovery system there and she had lived there all her life and uh, other members of her family lived in the area and were affected. And I came across her in a sort of professional situation some years later and I was starting to think about these social effects and I said, uh, it wasn't a real name, Mary, I said, you're a very gregarious person, you must have had a lot of friends in, in that area. Oh, yes, she said, I knew everybody. I'd grown up there. How many friends have you got in that community now that were in your network before the fire? And literally her jaw dropped open. None. None. None of her old friends. Now, I immediately thought that there'd been research since the 1950s on mental health which showed the number one protective factor for mental and physical health is good social support. So at the very time you want to maximise the stability of your familiar support system, it falls away. And I have another story of a man who told me, I met him um, probably about five or six years ago after a flood, and he told me, he came up and said, I was in Ash Wednesday uh, with my young family. They're all grown up now. But he said, um, I'd grown up with my cousin who was about the same age. We were best friends. We all, families went on holidays together. We uh, got girlfriends and went out together. Uh, we got married at the same time. Uh, we've shared our lives completely together. And then we lived in different communities, but uh, the house burnt down. And, uh, of course, everything was in turmoil with me. But uh, uh, some, you know, a few days later, my cousin rang up and said, oh, you weren't affected by that terrible fire, were you? Uh, and I said, yeah, we lost everything. He said, oh, oh my goodness. Uh, I'm so sorry to hear it. You'll be all right, though, won't you? Yeah, yeah, we'll be all right. And he said, from that day to this, he's never heard from him again. So it's a, it's a very dramatic story, but there are a lot of people who feel frightened of emotion, frightened of suffering, of trauma, uh, and they shy away from it. And we know, and there's now been wonderful research from the United States that, that does great big statistical studies that shows the number one predictor of both the speed and adequacy of recovery it's not the amount of money that's spent, the amount of uh, infrastructure that's built or the political connections. It's what they call social capital, which is the relationships you have with people. And there are various sorts of relationships that you need. But, but uh, these relationships they found studying things in, in Japan don't just predict the recovery from all the different communities after the Fukushima earthquake but they also predicted the death rate because in the communities that had high social capital and good relationships, they didn't wait for the authorities to warn them that a tsunami coming. Anyone that saw them contacted everybody and they had arrangements where people jumped over the fence and picked up the old fellow next door, put him on their shoulders and, and went up the nearest hill. Uh, and, and so this leads me to... Uh, a really important experience that if you think about it, when the disaster occurs, it always involves physical events. It's a little bit different when you have a shooting 
and I've worked on a number of those, bus crashes, uh, you know, those sorts of things, where there's often very high traumatic experience, deaths, injuries, but the physical damage is not significant. And so you've got a kind of focus on the psychological experience, but when the physical situation is totally demolished, the focus comes in on the physical situation. Even if uh, people have died, if you've lost loved ones but your house has gone, you've got to get going on your house as soon as you can. Therefore, there is a tendency for everybody from the, the cabinet ministers until they've been educated, uh, and if you have people who, uh, you know, politicians, decision makers, who've had some experience, that's very, very helpful. They've, they've sort of learned things. But the initial instinct is that everybody thinks this is all about rebuilding the houses. Um, and yet people have had uh, life-changing experiences. And so it's like a rupture to the flow of their life. And I've said that we've got three factors. We've got trauma, which is the injury, loss, which is leading to grief. And what we lose is not just a, an object, but it's part of me, part of my identity. But the third one, which took me 10 years or so to start to understand, and I've had to do a lot of reading in all sorts of areas to kind of make sense of it, and that is the fact that people's lives are disrupted. So trauma, loss, and disruption. You know, one of the big risks is that you you lose your physical infrastructure. You then suddenly have a massive new task. You know, I often say to people uh, when I'm doing training, imagine you go home tonight and find a very large tree's fallen on your bathroom and completely demolished it. Have you got time to go through the insurance and the builders and the planning and the local government and then to choose the tiles? Or are your lives already full? They're already full. Okay, but you're going to have to do that, aren't you? You won't be able to have a shower. So. Uh, what are you going to put aside? Well, I can't stop going to work. I won't have the money to pay for the bathroom. So you're going to put aside basically everything that's dispensable, so it seems, talking to your wife, for instance, uh, playing with your kids, visiting your in-laws, going for a run, talking to your friends. You haven't got time for any of that stuff for a few months. Uh, and so what what actually happens is that people's lives become reorganised around the priority of getting the job done. And that's what healthy, competent, capable people do. They focus on what has to be done. But they can't do it fast enough because their assumptions about how long it's going to take are based on, you know, if a tree fell on their bathroom. And it wasn't. it's a different, of course, when we had this terrible storm in, in Victoria where huge numbers of trees Thousands and thousands of trees fell down on lots of houses. That, that was a different disaster, but I'm just talking about the one-off. The assumptions that they have um, don't fit what's going to unfold. What happens is they start to encounter the fact that when they want to rebuild, let's not even worry about uh, insurance premiums, uh, insurance policies that don't quite cover some things, uh, but but 
What about the encounter has happened after Black Saturday that suddenly the bushfire regulations have been changed on a national basis and now there's a lot of new regulations and it's going to cost them an extra $100,000. But why are those regulations been changed? They've been changed so that when new houses are built, they'll be safer if not so many people will die. But that's not what the people in Black Saturday were thinking about. They were thinking about, uh, I have to pay $100,000. I haven't got enough anyway. Or you can't rebuild here because it's in flame zone uh, and so on and so forth. So they encounter one regulation after another that seems to just be an obstruction. And so if they're not careful, they go into this rage and this conflict, which now we've done research in Victoria, which shows that anything that creates high emotion in people during this time means that their brains go into that stress zone, that sort of survival-oriented stress zone, and they become incapable of using their higher mental faculties, prioritising, strategic planning, long-term judgments, problem-solving, and they go into sort of, I've got to get this done now, which often means they get angry and get upset and go into conflict and don't achieve things. And they often can't even then, when they're in that very stressed state, even get on with their uh, processes. What that means is that their recovery stalls. And people will often say, I haven't been able to do anything this month. And if they stay in this stress, okay, I can tell another story. I, I talk about this, that in this state of stress, you can't make decisions. You can't even remember things. I know I've hit the mark when I say, uh, when you're, you'll know when you're stressed because you'll be going up to the bedroom to get something. By the time you get there, you can't remember what it is. So you go back to your study and, and, and you realize you can't read your computer screen. So you go back to look for your glasses and then you can't find them anywhere and you spend half an hour doing that. And as you walk back down the, co uh, the corridor once again to see if they're on your desk, you pass a mirror, which shows them they're sitting up here. You know, this is, that sort of disorganisation we all get into. And people drive themselves mad. Sorry for the interruption. This is Ian Westmoreland, the founder of Kintsugi Heroes, and thank you for listening to this story from one of our amazing heroes. Our mission is for these stories to provide hope and inspiration to people experiencing life challenges and to also educate the broader community on how best to provide support. If you would like to help us to continue to produce more hero stories, and cover more adversity themes, we would welcome all donations. These can be made via our website, kitsukiheroes.com.au. The donate function is at the bottom of the homepage. We'd also welcome any feedback. You can email me direct using ian at kitsukiheroes.com.au. Now let's get back to the story. And But the, the real thing is that they're recovery stalls, what would they need to get out of that? Go to a barbecue with the community and eat half-cooked sausages and laugh together, tell jokes. Maybe have someone come along and play some music or a comedian or something. Laugh together. That brings them out of the stress. Their brains start to fire up again and the next day. And I was talking about this uh, in a... a, a Black Saturday, very badly affected 
town and I told his story, these stories. And uh, I went back there about six months late and did a follow-up story. And the bloke who ran the local caravan park came up to me and he said, I heard you last time and I realised you were talking about me. I couldn't get anything done. So I talked to my wife and we actually took the family to Bali for two or three weeks. He said, literally, when I came back, I achieved more in three days than I'd achieved in three weeks. It's because what people don't realize is that when we disrupt our lives, we disrupt all the patterns we've achieved to kind of make our life manageable, to uh, keep ourselves on the ball, to balance recreation and so on. And what's really lost there is routines. We lose routines. And they go into a state of improvising daily life, improvising it. Now, if you're in routines, you don't have to think about what you're doing. If you, you can be processing all sorts of things. You can get up and have breakfast and get dressed and go to work and, and drive to work for half an hour. A lot of people said they missed that that commute because it's their time of mulling and processing. And if we don't do that, we can't get things into perspective. We can't pull in the various bits and hold them all together. But we do that without thinking in normal life, so we don't realise we've lost it because basically we're focused. As stress produces this tunnel vision on our problems. And so we're, we're, all the resources we need are falling away. And so I started really analysing routines, and I realised that we form routines around what's important to us. The example I give is maybe a, a couple uh, want to be good parents, so they fall into a routine that uh, when the kids go off and do their homework after dinner and the parents tidy up the kitchen, they start talking about how they're going to manage the weekend and deal with problems at school and so on. Maybe they have a cup of tea together for a few minutes, half an hour, and they coordinate their parenting, and then they put the kids to bed, pay the bills, and go to bed. And they fall into a pattern where they'll do that probably a few times a week. And if they don't do it after dinner, they'll do it on Saturday afternoon when the kids are playing sport or something. That's a routine where they coordinate their parenting. Now, all you need for them to lose that completely is to plonk the family in a caravan for 18 months. They haven't got the space. They haven't got a routine. They're squabbling over everything all the time. And what you get is a 10-year-old girl who tells the parents to stop stop arguing, I've got a test tomorrow. Dad, you sit down there. Mum, you sit down there. And just be quiet. I've got this homework to do. And the parents do it because they want their kids to have the homework. Now, this 10-year-old girl is actually running the family, isn't she? The parents have lost this self-awareness of their stress state. and. Uh, so then when they do move into their new house, she's now uh, 12, 13, uh, she's not doing what she's told because she's been running the family with these immature parents who have been who've lost the plot. And you see, so the loss of routines means we lose the values that the routines have been framed around, that the, the values that have been embodied in the routines of life. And so I think this is a major area of loss, and the loss often occurs in the second and third years 
when people's lives are getting very tatty. And, and I think this brings us to a, a, a very simple idea that the losses that occur in the fire are, broadly speaking, reversible. Eventually, after a number of years, they'll have a house again. They'll be living somewhere. Most people won't end up living under a bridge. It may never be as good a house, and their lives might never have the same structure as they had before, but they will be living somewhere. So I call that a reversible loss. They won't have the heirlooms and, you know, the lady who lost her mother's stuff, she'll never get that back. So they'll have that frame of life. But if during that time, as one woman told me when she looked back seven years later, uh, they haven't actually paid attention to the family relationships, they might say like this woman, my husband and I are still together, but we're just good friends. So they've lost the intimacy of their marriage and they don't know where it went because they were so busy all the time and they just drifted apart. This couple was still together, but I've had others who have separated because uh, they didn't know any why, it just didn't seem to be working. But uh, she's, this woman said, my 14-year-old daughter at the time, uh, she uh, she's all right. She's now at university, but we don't see her much. She's gone into a friendship network. So that uh, this girl, teenage girl, went into her peer group and so the peer group took over some of the family functions. Um, she said, the one I feel sorry for is my seven-year-old son at the time, who's now 14. He was a happy, outgoing boy with friends at school, enjoying learning. Now he's a lonely isolate who's uh, you know, got no friends and hates school. You can see how uh, these are, you could say, irreversible. No, they're not irreversible, but they are unnecessary uh, problems. And uh, there's a whole story we can give around processing trauma and and surviving loss. What's going to hold it all together is to preserve the quality of life, the structure of your life, the values that it's pinned on, and to hold that together with your community. What I've noticed is that when you think about trauma, there are probably in a natural disaster, the research shows us somewhere between about 5 and 20% of people who have a serious trauma that might need professional help. But everyone else has a bad experience, and most of them will muddle through if they've got a good social network and they can talk together over a few years. And that you'll see the whole community will move together through this. Maybe it'd be good to get a talk from somebody who can give them some understanding of these things from time to time. But they don't all need a clinical session. Um, and therefore, the, the fissures and cleavages and ruptures in the community are damaging the structure that they need to allow this communication of experience. And with that communication of experience becomes comes this sort of Oh, I didn't realize that was happening for you. Oh, you poor thing. Uh, and everyone moves out of the egocentric state that we have in stress because stress is a mechanism for me and my problems. And, and so when we come to the idea of resilience, I think those people seem to do it better who have an instinctive sense that 
I've lost everything. I'm going to have a big, long, difficult time, but I've got to hang on to what's important. I've got to hang on to my relationships. I've got to hang on to the quality of life. I've got to make sure my kids continue to see their friends and have good experiences. We've got to hold on to recreational pursuits and the things that give, gave our lives meaning. And, uh, you know, I think the essence of resilience and what enables us to adjust to trauma, and this has been supported by uh, research in the United States, is two things, is to actually be clear about the values that are important in our life, the qualitative features of our life, and secondly, to preserve social networks. None of us will do it alone without costing something really dear to us. And, uh, uh, you know, for some people it'll be physical health, for some people it'll be mental health, for some people it'll be the loss of direction in their lives. And to sort of draw that together, I'd, I'd say that I think what you see is a sort of a natural process that goes like this. People go into an initial survival state when the impact occurs and they rush around trying to survive and then they, they're not careful. They keep rushing, 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 rushing for about six months. And if they're not careful, they've utterly exhausted themselves. They will stop when they've got sort of temporary arrangements that are stable. They've got somewhere to live, found out what their insurance problems are, so on, and making plans. And then they go into this long, grueling, uh, enduring stress situation of the whole recovery process, which will take years. They don't think so, but it will gradually take years. The regulations that are there, I call them enabling, that enable our community to live together in a safe and harmonious way, suddenly become disabling because I hit them all at once and they just stop me trying to do what I want to do. And I'm not thinking in the broader perspective that the planners had when they made them. There's this turmoil, this emotional turmoil when people are very exhausted. And this is the time when people's lives really are at risk and where the one thing that I would emphasize is stay involved in your community. Even if you didn't normally go along to the community events, encourage the community leaders. Uh, they're often affected too, but any uh, agencies that come and help run social events, entertainments, opportunities to talk about their problems, to engage in collective bargaining with governments and, and so on, just work together, work together and always produce food and have uh, a comfortable environment where they can hang around and talk or come early. This is where neighbourhood centres and community centres absolutely crucial, but not everyone goes. Uh, everyone that does go will do better. And then when they finally got things rebuilt, that's when they take stock because you can't really stop and think until you've moved into your new house. But people have a problem attaching to the new house. Their friends say from outside the area, oh, aren't you lucky with the new house? I wish I had a new house. I didn't want this new house. I don't like living here. It feels like a motel. I loved my old house. Uh, and so they don't invite them again, do they? Um, and, and so what really happens is that the, uh, the, 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 the meaning of the experience starts to come to the fore 
when I'm no longer rushing around trying to fix everything up. And I call this the identity crisis period. Who am I? Uh, are my life plans still uh, relevant? Are the goals I had for my life still relevant? Or am I changed? And people sometimes change. And often the, we talk about post-traumatic growth shows a shift towards more intangible qualitative values in life um, and uh, valuing relationships and, and uh, experience of that sort. Um, and if people can do this, identity crisis stuff and, and work out, okay, we've got a slightly different plan and we've changed the various things and I'm now clear that I'm not going to work three jobs and try and get a, a very expensive car and a speedboat. I'm just going to spend that time valuing my family because we're all still alive and that's wonderful. You know, once they've got that and they settle in after another couple of years, it's very surprising. They often go through a period of profound emotional exhaustion. I don't feel like going anywhere. I don't feel like doing anything. And I say, well, that's not surprising because you've been working very hard in uh, that survival mode. Then you've worked very hard for a number of years in uh, rebuilding and getting everything going. And now you've been working hard psychologically to work out all this new stuff. You deserve a rest. And I call that stage recovery from recovery. And it's important to do that to actually follow those cues. I just don't want to do anything for a while. Tell your friends, I'm just going to, I'm just going to hibernate for a little while. Uh, I love you all, but I'll be back, but just, I, I just need time to myself. I remember one woman who used to, was very well connected in her the country community who actually got to the point where she would hide in her wardrobe because her friends would come around to visit. Uh, worried about her, of course, in the mornings after all the family had gone off to work and school. And they'd see a car in the, in the, it's just living in the country, the car in the garage, and they'd knock and she wouldn't be there. And they'd walk around knocking on the windows and doors, asking where she was. They were a bit worried about it. And she said, all I could do was shut myself in, in the wardrobe until they went away. Uh, it's better to, to understand that this is a stage. Um, and, uh, to really say, look, I'm just going to uh, incubate for a while, but uh, I'll see you later. So, um, isn't it better if you actually start breaking up the, these phases and start uh, resting and, and processing in the first phase and you do the, the long grind a bit slower and take more time and you go to Queensland every now and again or spend time just enjoying yourself and value being with your family and so on. You can actually, that'll be working and you go to community events and talk about life. You'll be doing the identity work. So you can kind of, have these all these stages start to merge into one, and uh, you don't allow it to be sidetracked by all the external things or saying it's all about the physical infrastructure. When you do that, people come out the end and they actually say, "I'm a very different person than I was before. Never wanted to go through it." And this is where I think the Kintsugi idea—you've uh, you've got beautiful golden metallic fillings in the cracks. And it's very strong again. And I think the more people understand that journey, the better they can do it when it actually does arise. Rob, you've said so much there, and I personally can relate to a lot of it, uh, a number of things that you said, and other things was totally surprising for me, and, and I can see how valuable it would be for people who've been through 
the bushfires or any kind of disaster. And I was just putting myself in the shoes of someone who went through the 2019, 2020 fires. And if they were listening to you, what could they do to learn those phases and help themselves? Because they might be like, so they're two, three years on, maybe they've got a new house or they're about to move into a new house and they're hearing this and they go, wow, I can relate to all of those things, but how do I know what phase I'm in? It's partly time, but it's partly um, recognising the, the symptoms of it. It's very hard to get people's attention when they're in the first phase. They could typically come to meetings. Um, but I've also had the experience of, uh, you know, going to particular communities. Black Saturday was fairly close to the city and I would go quite often. I'd go, you know, maybe every few months to places. And uh, I remember in the fourth year I went to one community that I've visited a number of times and before the meeting a woman came up to me and said, oh, look, I'm so pleased to finally get to one of your meetings. This is four years later. Never managed to get there before because there's always too many other things on. But many of the things that people have told me have been enormously help you, helpful. Thank you very much. So you, you realise that in, the, in these close-knit communities, people transmit information to each other. It becomes a process of collective learning. And so um, when that happens, you, you get a, a filtering out of information so that uh, people actually draw on a collective understanding. And that can come from uh, someone like me who's spent many years sort of following it through, but it also comes from people telling their stories from other disasters. You know, often uh, the most helpful thing is that people from the, the last disaster come along to the next one you know, when they're out, out the other side and come and share their experience and, and say, watch out for this and don't do this and, and so on. We learned that. Um, and, and there are, I think there are a number of organisations that are uh, very good at doing that. Um, nothing can replace that. Um, and, and, uh, and, of course, you can have, uh, there are organisations that provide education sessions uh, to groups and so on. Um, and. Uh, but that's the main thing. And, of course, reading stories it, it, or looking at videos or so. I know that there are about 60 videos of, of me telling this stuff on, on uh, YouTube. Uh, uh, I just think I just say the same thing over and over again for decades, but everyone tells me that uh, it's different because I'm probably learning things all the time. But, but uh, you know, any and talk to, talk to other people who've been through it. Uh, you know, and ask them questions. Get them to come along to a community meeting. Um, it's 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 through the personal contact that the most effective learning will happen. And uh, it's you can see, as you said yourself, once you give words to something that connects to a person's experience, they say, "Ah, yes, that's it. I, I understand it." And then they can make good decisions. Look after themselves. It's fa fabulous, Rob. Um, one, one insight that just came to me as you've been talking is this whole process is that these people g are going through a metamorphosis and it's not one that they chose, but it's one that has to happen, but it's, it's happening whether they like it or not, you know, and yeah. we all go through these 
times it's part of life, isn't it? Life yeah. happens and it it's does. about how we respond and with most of the life we can't control. Yes. Again, a factor of resilience and, and it plays into trauma has to do with the assumptions we have about life. Assumptions are formed by the repeated experiences of things being the same. Uh, and I often illustrate that when I'm talking to groups and saying, did any of you consider whether this building you're in is built to earthquake standards if we have an earthquake in 15 minutes? And they never have unless they come from Christchurch uh, because they don't happen here. Well, they do and they could, uh, but they haven't. So if we haven't experienced this, it's not part of our assumptions. What's part of our assumptions is I don't have to think about the building. So when it does happen, I think a, a trauma is an experience that violates the assumptions we had about ourselves, mm-hmm. nature, the world, other people, seasons, anything. And it's like they get ripped, they get torn, yeah. and they have to be rebuilt. Now, post-traumatic stress is to rebuild the assumptions around the fact that this is going to happen, and so I can never relax. I never feel safe, but I'm always waiting for it to happen again. Uh, but the, the proper healing is to rebuild the assumption that says these things can happen. It may never happen to me again, but it can happen. So I need to live with just that background understanding that uh, there can be emergencies of all sorts and a bit of knowledge of what I should do to keep myself and my loved ones safe. And in that way, we can normalize now. I read, uh, as part of my research, I read uh, some diaries about the Blitz in London. There was a project there of uh, asking people throughout the community to keep their diaries. And you see, if you read those diaries, they would be, you know, full of the bombing raids. Oh, it was terrible bombing last night, and poor old Mrs. Bloggs died around around the corner, and these houses were broken. How can these Germans do this to us and so on and so forth? But after a while, uh, it was normalized. And the diary entry says, uh, it was a terrible night last night. But I've been talking to Mrs. Smith around the corner who's got a wonderful recipe uh, for making birthday cakes out of sump oil and beeswax. Uh, and I'm going to try it for my little boy's birthday, you know, and this sort of thing. So they were, um, they didn't. I'm making a joke, but, uh, uh, you know, they, they, they're all about the, how to innovate the domestic routines around uh, rationing and uh, privations and so on. These, these women are holding their families together, um, and that was the, the task they were working on. Um, and the blitz just became the background situation. Of course, if they got their own house destroyed or lost people, it would be focused. But... We all have this capacity, and I think we are in the stage where we have to reset our assumptions around climate, and reset them that we can't make assumptions, that we have to be, uh, I, I think of it as in a state of poise. You know, when you're poised, standing in a train, for instance, I used to travel into the hospital by train for years and years, and I found that if I stood with my feet slightly apart and my knees slightly flexed in the train when I didn't get a seat. You could actually, 
just sit and stand there in a poised way and read a book because otherwise it's very boring. That's before we had mobile phones. Uh, but, uh, uh, you know, poise. That's, poise is to be ready for, for movements to be able to respond. And I think we can live our lives with poise in that way. Uh, but we've got to uh, we've got to just keep uh, uh, just on the ball, and I think community is currently struggling with that. And a lot of people don't want to let go of their assumptions; they they don't don't agree with climate change and so on. And other people are jumping ahead, and and uh, and so this is, uh, I think, a process of transition as a community. That's what you've just said in the last five minutes is just really profoundly um, big and and. For me, I'm just going to keep processing that, you know, how our trauma is is the ripped assumptions, right, Rip, being ripped apart and then the healing of, of repairing that acceptance that, yes, it might happen again, but it might not, and being able to, you know, deal with it if it does. Um, and I know there's people that, who will listen to this who have been through more than one bushfire. Uh, I've spoken to them and, uh, you know, those people have gone through all of the phases or the journey that you talked of and they're still here telling their story. Yes. That's a resilient person. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Who has, you know, transformed their life more than once. Uh, yes. Yeah. And and like you say, with the climate change and the future, like you say, we, we, it's an, ins- it's like, I can see you looking at that and, and just, I guess, using the learnings of these natural disasters, there will be others. There will be other natural disasters. We might have more floods, earthquakes, bushfires and anything else. Mother yes. Mother Earth, you know, we can't control her. And yes. uh, Mother Earth is going to have to find a new, uh, new normal and it will be uh, disruptive in the process, and, and we need to be willing to go with it. Otherwise, we just get hurt mm. by it. That's right. Thank you, Rob. You, you've you've provided so much insight today, and I I'm so grateful for you and for everything that you're doing. And for those listeners who want to like learn more, like you said, you've you've got lots of videos on YouTube. If you Google Rob Gordon, disaster psychologist, and ignore the uh, the chunky real estate agent and the second-rate actor, and I think there's a golfer called Rock Gordon. There's a couple of other psychologists called Rock Gordon, so it's got to put disaster in. Uh, you'll come up with a whole lot of YouTube on all sorts of different disasters that people tend to put them up, uh, and, uh, you know, feel free to use any of the information that I present in any way that's helpful. Wonderful. We'll leave it there, and I just want to thank you for your time. I'm so grateful. You're welcome. Okay, it was a pleasure. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Kintsugi Heroes with the Alpine Bushfires special series. Please like and share the show to your friends so we can get this out to even more people. If you have a story you'd like to share with us, please reach out using the contact details below. And join us for our next hero story. Until then, keep being you and remember that we are all heroes in our own unique way. Only when it's broken. Only when it's broken.
Only when you're broke